Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com/wonder. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University. Today, I'm honored to speak with Sir Paul Preston, a professor of international history at the London School of Economics and the author of over a dozen books on the history of 20th century Spain. Preston's work is marked by critical engagement with the history of Spain, elegant prose, and virtuosic command of detail. His work has been showered with many accolades from institutions inside and outside of the UK and translated into numerous languages, including Spanish, Catalan, German, and Russian. Within Spain, Preston's work is widely read and respected and has been central to informing discussions of historical memory about the Spanish Civil War by providing evidence of the systematic nature of the atrocities committed during this period in books like The Spanish Holocaust. In our conversation today, we'll talk about his 2020 book, A People Betrayed. This sweeping synthesis of the history of modern Spain uses the three lenses of corruption, political incompetence, and social division to weave together a century of Spanish history to understand how these forces have consistently undermined social cohesion and democracy in the country. Professor Preston, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'd like to begin with a question about how you first became interested in the field of Spanish history. Um, You've had a very long and prolific career, and I was wondering if you could speak a bit about um, what first attracted you to this field. And then the second uh, related question that's a bit more general uh, about the larger interest uh, in Spanish history in the United Kingdom. Uh, It seems to me that the field is uh, very much dominated by scholars uh, working in the UK. Um, What accounts for this, if you could say a bit about that? Right. Um, If I may take the questions in reverse order. Sure. uh, I think that, first of all, it is absolutely the case that in the UK, but I think this is also true of the United States. So I would say it's true of Anglo-Saxon academe, that there is an interest in the history of the countries. Um, Now, if we think about Spain, obviously in the United States, there's much more interest in Latin America, in the Hispanic world that's closer. But nonetheless, there isn't that interest, which most 
European countries do not share that. In France, Italy, Spain, Germany, there is a concentration on national history, and much less history of, of, of other countries. One of the things that always amuses me when I'm in Spain is there's an assumption that if not all British historians, certainly those who don't work on British history, are necessarily what in Spain are called Hispanists. In other words, that they, that we all study Spanish history. Of course, this is simply not true. Uh, those of us who study who study Spanish history are a small minority, uh, particularly relative to those who, say, study Germany or the United States or colonial history or whatever. But nonetheless, it is the case that, that there are there's a, a very strong tradition in Britain of studying the history of Spain. And that's, I think, put simply because Spain has such an utterly fascinating and colourful history. Um, certainly, once it is brought to one's attention, it is difficult not to be entranced and involved and kind of sucked in. So, to go to your other question, how did this happen to me? Well, my uh, story, if you like, is, is, is a rather odd one in this regard. Um, I was born in 1946, just after the Second World War. And I was born to a working class family in Liverpool. Now, Liverpool was extremely badly battered by the Luftwaffe during the Second World War because Liverpool uh, was the prime port for the entry of food and armaments, all kinds of shipments from the United States. Uh, and there's always been a very close relationship between Liverpool and the United States. Indeed, Liverpool is one of the few cities that's actually twinned with, with New York. But anyway, so I was born in this uh, in, in, in this northern working class town. And bizarre, I, I mean, I grew up with a, a considerable interest in the Second World War because uh, in the home in which I was brought up, largely by my grandparents because my mother died when I was a baby, um, there was still constant talk about the Blitz, you know, the... Uh, the kind of shorthand for the Blitzkrieg, uh, the, the German bombings and so on. And so as a as a young child, I mean, the, the kids in the street, in those days you could play in the street, um, you know, a lot of the games were British versus Germans. As I grew older, I developed an interest in building models of aircraft of the Second World War. So basically, as I went through adolescence, I had a, a, a bit of an interest in the Second World War and, and, and read books about it. I was very fortunate um, and quite unusual in a way that I managed to get a scholarship to go to the University of Oxford, which was pretty unusual for somebody from a, a from a working class family and B from a northern working class family. And obviously, uh, Oxford's a great university and is beautiful in many ways. Has I mean, physically, architecturally, is very beautiful. Uh, has amazing libraries and so on. However, I personally found my time in Oxford certainly academically quite disappointing because the courses, hardly any of the courses, were 
centered on the things that interested me. There was a great concentration, of course, on on, on British history, um, going right back to the Anglo-Saxon period. Uh, that was a, a substantial part of, of the course. There was quite a lot on British constitutional history. Of course, one could do some European history, um, but of a, of a degree that consisted of 13 or 14 academic, I don't remember, uh, academic courses. Only two were, or that I was able to do were on um, European history. Uh, I suppose if one considers what in, in the jargon of, of the time was called your special subject, which was the, the subject you had to do using documents, was on the origins of the, of, of the First World War. But of course my interest was in the period leading up to the Second World War. I was interested in the 1930s and 1940s. So I finished my degree feeling that next up I would like to do research, but there wasn't much I, I felt that I could do. Um, I didn't really have languages. I studied French uh, at school, French and Latin at school, to a pretty rudimentary level, and again, there were set texts in the in the Oxford course that meant one had to use French and Latin. But I didn't want to do British history because it was such a crowded field, and to do British history in the period that interested me would have meant basically doing British foreign policy and some minor incident. Um, and I didn't particularly want to do French history. Um, and while I was dithering... I got an extraordinary offer from a university which is halfway between Oxford and London, the University of Reading, which was just starting up a graduate school and was offering uh, a master's degree in which it was possible, it was basically on contemporary European history and politics, and it was possible to specialise on the interwar period. And of the courses that were available, I mean, the structure was that you had to take two taught courses and do a dissertation, a research dissertation with each of those courses. And the two that I chose were left-wing literature of the interwar period, which was very largely uh, French, although, as it happened, I actually wrote my, my dissertation in that course on John Steinbeck. Uh, who I was rather obsessed with at that time in my life. But the other course that I did was on the Spanish Civil War. Now, on the Spanish Civil War, I knew the very bare basics from what I'd done in my European history course at Oxford. But the the teacher, the person who was who was leading this course, was Hugh Thomas, who at the time was considered the if you like, the, the world expert on, on the Spanish Civil War, having published a, a huge blockbuster on it um, some years before. And he well, it, it, it was a terrific course in many ways. First of all, there were only four students, so we had direct access to him. He was a terrific teacher, uh, very approachable, very colourful, um, and... Because of his sort of social contacts, the people he could bring in to enliven the seminars were quite extraordinary. So, you know, he brought in the British admiral who had uh, commanded the fleet uh, during the siege, of the Franco siege of Bilbao. Um, he brought in the only 
British pilot who'd fought in, in the Luftwaffe. You know, incredible. Uh, so it was an absolutely riveting course. And quite early on, as I got more and more interested, I'd rather run out of books in English to read. And I decided I really needed to learn Spanish. And I did it in two ways, probably to the horror of any linguistics experts. But uh, on the one hand, I took the book that I most needed to read and I read it with, with a dictionary, sort of jotting down all the words that I didn't know, which were <laughs> the majority of them, apart from those that I could work out from French and Latin. Um, the book in question was a book called Los Partidos Monárquicos en la Segunda República by a man called Santiago Galindo Herrero. I, since I virtually learned it off by heart, even 50-odd years later, or nearly 60 years later, I can still remember it. The other thing I did, of course, was to start to mix in the, in the university bar, the students' bar, with Latin American students. Now, I made some very good Colombian friends, and of course, as you know, the Colombians speak very, very good Spanish. So anyway, so that, that kind of got me started. And then not long after, I mean, while still registered in, no, actually, I'd finished my, my master's, but um, and, and had signed up to go back to Oxford to do, to do a PhD or a DPhil, as they're called in Oxford. And Needed, I wanted to go to Spain, and I, I, I in, in, in the, the summer of, I think it's 1969, I went to Spain first um, briefly to Madrid, and then I spent some time in, in a village in the south. And I was totally entranced by it. I, I loved the language, I loved the sound of it, I loved to listen to it, I loved the way it rolled off the tongue. In Madrid, I was completely uh, knocked out by the sights and the sounds and the smells. It all seemed so exotic. One has to remember that in, in the late 1960s, it was much nearer to the Spain of the Spanish Civil War than, than, than now is um, to that Spain. Things have changed so so rapidly. So I love the fact that you know you could see artisans working on the on the pavements, you know, you could smell the leather, the wood. Um, and then, of course, when I went when when I went down south, it was wonderful because my very limited foreign experience was of of, of being sneered at in in France because of not speaking perfect French. Um, <laughs> but in Spain, merely to stammer a few words haltingly you became a kind of local hero. I mean, the people were so warm and welcoming that I absolutely loved it. So that was the, that was the beginning of it. Um, by that time, I was completely hooked. And uh, I then went back, supposedly, to do a, uh, my doctorate in Oxford with Raymond Carr, who was the considered the great, the, you know, the, the great Spanish expert. He'd not long published his huge... Uh, History of Spain, Spain, 1808, uh, 1939. But he was was on sabbatical. He was actually in the United States at the time. So I didn't really have a supervisor. I saw him briefly, and he was the kind of supervisor who would tell people what he wanted doing. Um, 
quite the opposite, actually, of my experience as a PhD supervisor. I always said to people, I don't want to talk to you if you don't know what you want to do. <laughs> I need you to want this. Um, and I always think that was a better bet. But anyway, he wanted me to work on uh, conser- the Conservatives um, up to and during the Prima de Rivera dictatorship. So without a supervisor or without guidance, I mean, I was given a formal supervisor who was actually a very nice man, but he was an expert on Italy, knew nothing about the subject. I went off, went to Madrid. Um, While I loved being in Madrid and did what I think is absolutely crucial for any historian of a foreign country, which is to acquire a second identity, you know, to learn to speak the language properly, Mm -hmm. to try to... Fit in and so on. So I, I, I absolutely love that side of it. But the research, I've, of, of, particularly on that, I found very, very boring. And what I really wanted to do was to to work on the origins of the of the Civil War. And I was very, really fortunate because Raymond Carr had an assistant, an absolutely brilliant man called Harkin. Romero Maura, uh, actually a great grandson of the, uh, you know, the, the great conservative politician Antonio Maura, and he kind of took me under uh, his wing and, and became my sort of unofficial supervisor, and basically let me rip. And so I started to work on what I wanted to work on, which was the origins of the Civil War and the conflict between the socialists and, and the supposedly the very right-wing Christian Democrat Party, the Theda, which became my thesis, which in turn became my first book, The Coming of the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> so that, that's the, that, that takes the story up to about 1978. Great. Well, thank you for that overview. It's really fascinating to understand the kind of uh, intellectual development uh, of a scholar and then how that informs the work. And I, I think something you were talking about at the end of acquiring a second identity. Now you feel this is key for a historian of a foreign country. I think this really ties into your to the, a people betrayed. I think this comes across very clearly, your knowledge of Spain, your intuitive knowledge of the, of the culture and of the people. Um, and I'd like to begin here with a, a question about the first question about the book. Um, you begin with a chapter in which you synthesize and compare many of the impressions of foreigners and ways in which foreign observers um, thought about Spain, especially from England and France. Um, and many of these observations ended up uh, kind of promoting the so-called black legend uh, of Spain uh, presenting Spain as kind of a backward country. Um, but of course, they changed over time. But it's it's incredible how durable many of these um, impressions of Spain um, have been uh, even up to the present day for, for foreigners. So you do this in a critical way. Um, but in the book, of course, you're focused on these three lenses of, of corruption, political incompetence, and social division. And I want to focus in on corruption um, because this in a way, risks uh, creating a new kind of uh, black legend of Spain by focusing on on the corruption. But in the book, you're incredibly careful uh, not to do this. But I'm just wondering, when you were thinking about the book, conceiving of these three languages, uh, three lenses, if you feared um, perhaps overstating uh, the corruption bit and perhaps promote uh, promote it or uh, tying into the kind of black legend. It- 
uh, talk about that a bit. Right. Well, no, I, I didn't actually. I mean, it, it, oddly, oddly, that came later after it was published and started to get reviewed. At the time, and indeed, I mean, this is what the book was about. I felt, you know, what I was writing was not, not a book that was critical of Spaniards. It was a book that was deeply sympathetic to Spaniards. It was basically, the basic thesis is, ordinary Spaniards have had a really lousy deal from their politicians. And um, so that, you know, that, I, I mean, I'd been asked to write uh, a general history of, of contemporaries, of modern contemporary Spain, you know, from the mid-19th century to the present day, a bit along the lines of, if you like, bringing up to date and uh, a kind of a giornamento de, giornamento de, uh, the book by the book by Raymond Carr that I mentioned early on. But I hated the idea. I mean, when when various people, particularly my, my literary agent, was trying to persuade me to do this, the argument that uh, he used was, oh, you know, this will be so easy because you've written about most of this period and, you know, all you have to do is kind of line up the manuscripts of your books end to end and and then do a resume. And I thought, oh, my God, that is absolutely the last thing I could I would be bored out of my mind. And I sort of sat down to think about, you know, did I want to do this? And I came to the conclusion, the only way I want to do this, if it is genuinely original, well, original to me at least, it wouldn't just be a kind of encyclopedic collection of, you know, what happened in Spain during this period. And here I think, and I think this is important, it dawned on me as I was thinking about this, and indeed even more so as I was writing the book, how much, I mean, this is a, in, in many respects is a cliche, but how much uh, the way the history one, one writes is actually the history of the time in which one is writing it. Mm. Um, I was very aware you know, when, I, when I started, I mean, obviously on the one hand, the book drew on you know, the... 30 or 40 years before of working on Spain. So there was a lot of knowledge sort of buried at the back of my mind. But the actual main work on on the book took place during a period in which Britain was deeply divided by uh, the social division, by the the, the fake news that surrounded the the referendum and and the campaigns for the referendum over Brexit, the bitterness that carried on thereafter and indeed is, is absolutely central to British politics today. And of course, uh, during that time, a lot came out about corruption in this country. So those, that, those kind of filters, if you like, the, the equation that underlies the book, which is political incompetence plus corruption equals social division. Yeah. Was something that was in the ether. I mean, I, I'm not sure. It it kind of became obvious to me as I as I was getting near the end of the book that to what extent I'd been influenced by uh, the time in, in in which I was writing it. So here we had a book which, as I say, was was initially and indeed is 
a book about how Spaniards have had a pretty raw deal at the hands of their politicians because their politicians um, certainly, well, <laughs> very difficult. I think at some point in the book I say, you know, there's only really two periods when one can really say overall the politicians have clean hands. That was the, the Second Republic of the 1930s. And the first years after the socialist electoral victory in October 1982, when I think you know things were very much as people had hoped uh, would be the case from the transition, but throughout there's been corruption, but all kind all kinds of corruption. And um, obviously, I was very aware that you know, this is this is this. I mean, there are so many different kinds of corruption. You know, there's the there's the corruption of hunger. The people who will do anything, uh, and perfectly understandably and justifiably, in order to you know to to feed themselves or feed their families, R- rising through all kinds of you know the the kind of uh, you know to 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 get a a zoning change, the envelope packed full of money to rise at the top, the use of of, of the law for massive legal, what is effectively legal corruption, conflicts of interest, and so on. So I'm very aware of all of that, and um, you know, I, I hope that, that informs the book. But as I say, absolute central theme is Spaniards got a raw deal. Although, of course, as I write it, I was aware that the ordinary Joe in so many countries get, gets, gets a raw deal. But the idea that in some way, I might have contributed to the idea that Spaniards are intrinsically corrupt, which is absolutely not what the book says. Mm-hmm. But came, you know, there were one or two reviews, particularly in this country, which were kind of crowing, saying, "Oh yeah, look, you know, this is a great book. It, it proves that Spaniards are corrupt," which, of course, was not was not the case. I mean, I'm obviously I'm exaggerating. It wasn't quite as crude mm-hmm. as that, but there was a. In, in a couple of reviews, there was certainly yeah. um, you know, there was certainly that insinuation, right? And and I think I mean I, I wasn't suggesting that you you do that, but I think you know one of the ways you avoid doing that is because you're so um, I mean the level of detail that you get into and showing how the as you were kind of suggesting how the corruption changes over time, um, it, it's very nuanced, so it's not attributing it to any kind of um, inherent features of, of, of being Spanish. Um, so I think it, it certainly avoids that. But I think for some of the reviews, um, perhaps the, the, didn't give the book a careful read. Um, well, do, but, do, re- do reviews ever, you know. I, <laughs> yeah. I know from back in the day when I used to review a lot myself, you know, you get a 700-page tome. And you have to produce. Yeah. You know, you, you've got sometimes barely a week in order to produce a review. Right. So inevitably, people people skim. Right. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. 
The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Right. Um, I, I want to come return back to th- how the corruption changed over time, the different types of corruption. So I think this is a, I think something the book does incredibly well. And maybe we could focus a bit on chapters seven and eight, where you talk about the Primo de Rivera dictatorship, um, which I think were uh, two like absolutely fantastic chapters that were incredibly illuminating for me. Um, in this period, I think what you show uh, really well is how even when um, mechanisms to stop corruption were created, kind of bureaucratic, uh, a bureaucratic apparatus that ostensibly was aimed at uh, stopping corruption, the different types of corruption that were occurring, um, it didn't do this, right? There was always a kind of a workaround to the apparatus was uh, underfunded or didn't have the manpower in order to enforce the uh, new laws that were trying to combat corruption. Can you talk a little about maybe the in this in that period during the primo years what what type of corruption was dominant and maybe you could also just talk about throughout the throughout the entire book to the extent possible what were the kind of main varieties of corruption and at, at what times and perhaps that's uh way too broad but maybe we'll just start with the primo de rivera years well in all the, i mean the, the the primo de rivera years there's all kinds i'd say i mean first of all you you may recall i said earlier on that when I first started out, Raymond Carr had wanted me to do research on the Primo de Rivera dictatorship. And in those days, um, I mean, we're talking about the late 60s, early 70s, there was very little that was open in terms of archives in those days. It was very difficult. Uh, I mean... I mean, you would not believe how difficult it was and how shambolic. Mm. I mean, there, there were archives where rather than needing a catalogue, what you actually needed was a shovel um, because, you know, so much of the material was just basically, you know, not only uncatalogued, but, you know, wasn't even in, in folders. Um, so it was very difficult and... Uh, I was bored stiff because all I could find, if you like, was the was the official side. So in, in a way, what you just referred to, the, mm-hmm. the measures. You know, here was a, a dictatorship that came in and said, you know, what, what, "I'm here as the dictator. I'm here to clean up corruption. Spain is is riddled with corruption. I'm I'm going to sort it out." And the material that I was able to look at way back all those years ago was the official stuff, which was basically all lies. I mean, it was basically about the institutions that were set up, which were never meant to function, uh, and indeed never did function. And what, I mean, in a way, um, a question that Spanish journalists always ask me about any of my books which is a, a, usually an utterly ludicrous question. You know, they say, which bit do you like best or which do you think is the best bit of your book? Mm-hmm. And I, I can, you know, I can say, well, I don't like any of it or whatever. But in this case, what I, I'm really, to use an English expression, which you couldn't have used in the days, what I'm really chuffed by <laughs> is the, the, 
the chapter on, or the two chapters on it, it, it's only one in the Spanish translation, they put two, two in the English edition. Uh, the chapters on all the material on the Prima de Rivera dictatorship, because what it does, what I was able to find, is I, I got all of the information, well, all, all of the, you know, the critical vision that made sense of the lies that had bored me all those years ago. Um, now, what was it that Primo Rivera said he was going to clean up? Well, of course, to, to answer that, one, one needs to look at the period before, and also this mm. covers your question about different kinds of corruption. Mm. The principal form of corruption prior to 1923, when the military dictatorship came in, was electoral corruption, because, I mean, the, the electoral system was so rigged that it was called El Turno, you know, it was the rotating system, either the Liberals or the Conservatives, who were the two main monarchist parties, between whom there was very little difference. Um, the Conservatives tended to represent exporting agriculture of the South, the Liberals, the, the more... Um, sort of conservative, well, despite the name, the the agriculture, the wheat growers of, of, of the North who, who weren't into, into free trade, which of course the exporters were, but basically the, their views were very, 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 very similar. And they kind of boxed and coxed, they, they, they swapped over every four years, and they had all of the, the techniques which allowed uh, electoral the kind of thing that President Trump would have loved to have. Uh, they had all of the mechanisms which made it possible. So uh, with the, I, I quote some sort of uh, entertaining stories about uh, the dead in cemeteries being signed up to vote, not dug up, but certainly the, their names used, or in, e e even cows in a herd the, the, you know, the, 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 basically the, the key thing was electoral corruption because if you had the if you used electoral corruption to gain political power then the opportunities to make money because it gave you control over the judiciary which in turn made it possible to do all kinds of dirty dealings with impunity and so on this is allegedly what Prima de Rivera was going to clean up. Well, of course, he did by the simple device of stopping the elections. So you know, it was a dictatorship. But it opened the way to another kind of corruption. And so what we have, I mean, the, the, the central mechanism, that, I mean, there were many, many kinds of corruption. Some of it, I mean, it, it, it's so grotesque, I think, that, that those parts of the book are almost comical um, mm -hmm. because basically um, Prima de Rivera's great wheeze was monopolies. So there were monopoly, monopolies on all kinds of things, um, whether it be uh, f fuel, um, there was a fuel, of, but going all the way down to rat catching. Um, and all of these monopolies were very tightly organized in uh, administratively. So each monopoly would have a provincial administration and that provincial administration would have all kinds of people on the payroll. And of course, of, of the 
50 provinces in Spain at the time, every one of the uh, the senior staff of the of the monopolies of all the monopolies, and there were very many, were military personnel um, or relatives, distant relatives of Prima de Rivera or of his friends and so on. So it was an absolute jamboree. And I was very fortunate because the only thing that exposed this, because, of course, we're talking about a regime which had absolutely controlled press and tight censorship and so on. But uh, Prima de Rivera had exiled many of the critical intellectuals, and they, most of whom were in, in France, organized a series of kind of newsletters which were smuggled into Spain, uh, which exposed each each issue would have exposés of the various things that um, the government was up, the Prima de Rivera regime was up to, and I, I was able to find all of these, uh, and it it basically enabled me to write what for me was utterly original. Um, I think I, I think probably it was, um, and indeed is <laughs> quite an original contribution. Um, you know the the, the, the expose of what went on under Prima de Rivera, and of course some of the I mean the the, the comical parts which we find a lot of uh, there are lots of other examples the the lies you know that that um, I I have been able to buy a house because people love me so much that they have <laughs> this huge subscription in order to show their gratitude to me. And what is not mentioned is, of course, that they, these were obligatory contributions from people from the, the wages mm-hmm. of civil servants and functionaries. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, 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 I think it's a good chapter. Professor Preston, I'd like to ask a question about the role of uh, intellectuals uh, throughout the 20th century uh, Spain, in particular, the ways in which they were able to um, denounce, speak out against uh, corruption, and the question is particularly about the influence they were able to have in speaking out against corruption, and perhaps what were some of the limitations of their ability to uh, effectively denounce uh, the kind of corrupt practices of, uh, of many Spanish uh, regimes. Well, it's certainly true to say that intellectuals, if one can generalize, uh, had an inordinate influence in Spain. Uh, and a, a real contrast, in a way, with both Britain and the United States, where I don't think that being an intellectual is particularly a, a respected activity. Uh, but it's certainly the case that uh, in Spain, as, as in France, of course, uh, intellectuals were, were greatly respected. Although it's rather odd in that Spain had um, a, a relatively small intelligentsia, because of course, uh, certainly well into well into the 20th century. I mean, probably really towards the end of the, of the Franco regime in the 1970s, Spain had very high levels of illiteracy. Mm. And, of course, one of the things that intellectuals uh, advocated was better, better educational levels um, and so on. I've often wondered if, ironically, one of the reasons for the uh, a special 
um, uh, reverence that was enjoyed by intellectuals was precisely to do with that uh, level of, of illiteracy, that uh, the illiterate thought of intellectuals was really almost godlike, godlike individuals. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. But there is this problem that um, because of illiteracy, the... Uh, the output of intellectuals in terms of newspaper articles and books reached a relatively small uh, audience. Having said that, um, they did have tremendous uh, tremendous influence. If we look at this chronologically, um, one of the uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century, one of the mega if you like, intellectual bombshells that had a huge impact was the, first of all, the set of lectures and then the book by the sociologist Joaquin Costa called Oligarchia y Catechismo. And, of course, it was a a denunciation of electoral uh, corruption, electoral corruption carried out by the oligarchy. And the instrument that was used, catechismo, which was the the term used in Spanish came from a, a Latin American term, cacique, which meant chief. But it was basically, uh, I, I suppose nowadays, sociologists would use the term clientelism. Um, and it was basically about the local power of the caciques, of the, of the local bosses. And uh, I mean, that was a very important um, element in the, uh, the building, if you like, of intellectual criticism of the, the, the monarchical regime. And then, of course, during the Prima de Rivera dictatorship, um, we have a huge role uh, played by exiled intellectuals. Mm. Uh, amongst those, uh, most prominently, of course, one would have to say Miguel de Unamuno, um, the philosopher, poet, and novelist um, who was one of the key figures behind the various clandestine news sheets that were uh, sort of smuggled into Spain had a a huge influence. Um, He was helped in this by the brother of the philosopher José Ortega Gasset, uh, his brother Eduardo. Um, And then after that great influence, um, the coming of of the Republic uh, the, the role of the intellectuals in bringing the democratic republic in 1931 is immense. Uh, partly, um, one could say that the republican parties—that's to say, uh, in, in modern term—again, let me repeat, nothing to do with, uh, not in any way, anything to do with uh, republicanism in, in the in the sense it's used in the United States, but republicans in the sense of opponents of monarchy and broadly speaking you would say that the republicans were were the liberals of the great coalition that finally brought about the the second republic the democratic regime and they even had a party um, called al servicio de la república in the service of the republic in which uh, probably the most prominent figure was the philosopher Jose Ortega Gasset, and the provincial government. Sorry, the provisional, the first government, the provisional. Sorry, I can't even speak English now. <laughs> the provis- provisional government of the republic 
was largely related to the great intellectual society in in Madrid, the Ateneo, the Ateneo de Madrid, which I <laughs> spent most of my time in Spain in the nine, in in the nineteen seventies as a member of the Ateneo. It's, it's amazing library which had survived the Franco regime was something that I used ruthlessly in, in preparing uh, my doctoral thesis. So overall, one can say intellectuals had a huge influence. And another way in which this can be seen is in the ferocious, bloodthirsty opposition to intellectuals of the Franco regime. In Franco's very first government, the so-called Junta Tecnica, Tecnica del Estado, what would be the equivalent of the Ministry of Education or the Ministry of Education and Culture, called the, the Comisión de Cultura, and it set out to purge the entire education system right through primary school teachers, secondary school teachers, university professors, and they were purged ruthlessly. Tens of thousands lost their jobs. Many thousands were imprisoned and quite a number were shot. And one of the great crimes uh, that was held against them was what they'd done in terms of trying to bring literacy to the benighted masses. So I think if we look at all of that, it's first to say that intellectuals have had a huge influence in, in the history of 20th century Spain. Well, thank you for that uh, overview. I mean, it's. I think you do this very well in showing that influence in the book, and we see that the, the main actors are not just the the corrupt politicians and business people, but intellectuals were able to to have uh, an influence. Um, in, our, in our remaining a few minutes together, I'd like to ask you a question about about uh, about this book, but also about some of your other work um, uh, about how you you see this. How, how this book has been received in Spain and how this differed from its reception outside of Spain. And perhaps you could also just speak um, about how, in general, how your books are received, the differences in how they're received in the, in, uh, the Anglophone world and in Spain. Right. Um, well, overall, I would say almost without exception, uh, my books have been pretty positively received um, in the Anglo-Saxon world. Um, there have, for instance, I mean, the, the one exception I would say is that uh, in recent years, my, my Spanish Holocaust um, offended uh, supporters of Franco, which you might find quite astonishing, but there are, of course, uh, supporters of Franco certainly um, on a massive scale within Spain, but also there's the odd one in Britain. And, um, of course, the the great uh, American uh, Hispanist, Stanley Payne, has over the course of his career moved, become ever more conservative. And one of his most recent books was an extremely favorable biography of Franco. But in general, I would say that uh, insofar as there's an interest in Britain and America in Spain, the reviews of my books have been very, very positive. In Spain, it's a sort of slightly different issue because, of course, Spain remains a deeply conflictive society. Mm. The, uh, the, the 
that that whole process of brainwashing, if you like, the national brainwashing that was carried out by the Franco regime, so building on the basis of its investment in terror, um, the Franco regime, through its control of the education system and uh, the media, was able, obviously, to to brainwash the nation. And and the consequences of that didn't go away uh, after 1977 with the first democratic elections, for obvious reasons. And so there there remains in Spain a still very considerable uh, number of people who think that, uh, you know, the Franco was a good thing. So in terms of the reception of my books in Spain, um, those who think that Franco was a bad thing, that uh, the Republic was a good thing, tend to like them very, very much. And overall, it goes without saying that the, certainly those on the extreme right absolutely revile them. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I do make, I make a real effort in, in my books, although I, I make no secret of the fact that I'm hostile to Franco and I think the Republic was overall was a good thing, but of course I'm aware of its mistakes. But I do try insofar as it's possible to see both sides, but I don't. I don't believe in a kind of strict objectivity because how can one be objective between the murderer and and his victim or or, or the raped and the rapist? Um, but nonetheless, I do I do make that effort, and so um, I, I often had extremely good reviews from uh, the more moderate right um, in Spain. There is an issue actually that there is. Barely a comparison to be made about intellectual life in Spain and in the United States and Britain, where in both the United States and Britain there are numerous highly respected journals which are dedicated to serious book reviewing. I mean, like obviously New York Review of Books, London Review of Books, Times Literary Supplement, uh, the New York Times. You know, there, there, there is a lot of serious book reviewing. Mm. In Spain, there's hardly any. Um, you know, there are a couple of magazines that um, that do it, but uh, basically, how books are received, it is. This might seem odd, is the province of newspapers. So when I, or indeed anyone of any uh, you know, any prominence, or who's written a book of, of interest in Spain. They get bombarded with requests for interviews. I mean, I've just got a book out literally <laughs> this week in Spain. Uh, it's about anti-Semitism. And um, I've, I've spent much of the week doing interviews. Um, the ones that have come out so far seem to be pretty favorable. Um, but it's not quite the same as, as a proper book review, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's really fascinating to to compare the the reception in two places. I mean, you so you've just alluded, you just said you have a book out this week in in Spain. So the book is coming out first in Spanish and then in English. Is that? Yes, it's a that's an odd business. I mean, <laughs> once upon a time, and this goes back many many years. You know, well, obviously, I mean, it's always the case. I I write in English. It's it's my language. The, yeah. the, the English version is the one that uh, I regard as truly mine, although. I, I have written a couple of books in Spanish, but uh, in, in the main, you know, my, my 
principal books are, are I kind of perceive of them, uh, or you know, my view of them is in the English version, really. And until I did my biography of General Franco in the early 90s, I would write the book in English and then it would get translated with varying degrees of success. I mean, the first version of the translation of Franco, I could regale you for an hour with the howlers that, that, that were in the translation. But anyway, as a result of the huge success that my book on Franco had, it started to get, to get the other way around so that as I was writing, my, it was almost it was a similar experience to that, not, not the sales part, but it was a similar experience to that uh, had by, by Charles Dickens. You know, I had the publisher grabbing chapters off, off me almost before they were finished so that he could get them translated quickly so the book could come out quickly. Hmm. So what would, and, and of course, in the main, um, until fairly recently, Things like copy editing, careful copy editing. Spanish publishers were, shall we say, less careful than what we're used to from certainly most British and American publishers and particularly university presses. So what would happen would be the book would come out in English and then it would come out in, sorry, the book would come out in Spanish, sorry, my mistake, uh, and then would come out in English maybe six months later. In the case of this one, which is actually called uh, Architects of Terror, it's about Franco's cronies and the use of uh, sort of a kind of fake news that really Spain was in the grip of what was called in Spanish the Contubernio Judeo Masonico Bolchevique, the a Jewish Masonic Bolshevik conspiracy, absolutely ludicrous idea, which drew on that great propaganda um, nonsense of the protocols of the elders of Zion um, and applied to Spain. And really Spain, you know, to, to, to accuse everyone on the left of, of being you know, in the hands of the Jews was crazy because there are hardly any Jews in Spain. Anyway, that, yeah. I could talk to you separately about the book. But unfortunately, because of, I mean, the, the, the book we've been discussing, that People yeah. Betrayed, was really hit badly by the pandemic because it came out in Spain in very late 2019, just before Christmas, and then it came out in English quite soon after. And literally, I mean, quite literally, it had fabulous reviews here in in, mm. in England. And, with, and within that week during which the reviews were coming out. The lockdown was imposed and all the bookshops were shut. So I have no idea if anyone ever bought a copy. Um, and anyway, so during the, the pandemic, of course, uh, the publishers had a huge backlog of titles. So in the case of this one, uh, it's going to be probably not until next autumn, uh, autumn 2022, before it comes out in English. Great. Well, I mean, I, let me just say thank you again for uh, taking the time to talk. I'm glad that we were able to discuss this book that, although, as you're saying, it was released during the pandemic and perhaps didn't get the publicity that it uh, deserves. Um, I think we're able to talk about some of the really uh, fascinating parts of it. And it's really an incredibly um, impressive uh, synthesis of Spanish history and also 
uh, has made a lot of contributions uh, to the history of 20th century Spain. So thank you, Professor Preston, and it's, uh, it's been a, a true honor to speak with you. Well, thank you. Uh, it has been a real pleasure talking to you. So, so thank you. Take care.